So on this day, we celebrate. Jesus' death on the cross was not the end of the story. He rose on that third day. The tomb is empty. And many of us here have discovered a relationship with God through Jesus. You know he's real. You know he's alive. You've felt him in your heart. You've seen him at work in your life and through your life. But I also know that some of you here aren't so sure, and I want you to know that you're welcome here. You may have been dragged here. I can tell. I saw some of your heel marks in the parking lot. (laughs) But you are welcome here. In fact, we're about to do a a series. We're starting it today, and for the next three weeks, this series, Why God? We're asking God some of the toughest questions. Today, we're asking, Why Jesus? Next week, we'll answer and look at the question, Why is there so much suffering? And then we'll have an astrophysicist named Hugh Ross here to explain how faith and science can be compatible. Or in the final week, Why Faith? And so I want to encourage you, in your chair was one of these cards. It's not just to remind you to be with us every Sunday for these four weeks, but to actually invite someone that you think might enjoy, might discover. In fact, if you aren't aware, we've started a new 6 p.m. service. And for those who work in the morning or 11 a.m. is even too early, uh, that's another option along the way. But we'd love to have you through this series. In fact, the series is designed to bolster your faith. If you already have a relationship with God, come ready to learn and, and write some things down so that you can help answer these questions. And for those of us, no matter where you may be on this journey, if we have an open heart and open mind, you'll discover that asking questions is a good thing. Hey, I want to let you know, if you have any little ones that want to go to the kids area or they get a little unruly, we do have a lobby TV But what I want you to do now is to watch uh, two of our own as they ask some really important questions. This is Andre and James. Question, if penguins can't fly, then why are they dressed like fancy pilots? Question, why does Rose say she'll never let go and then immediately lets go? Question, why is it called a driveway if all you ever do is park on it? Question. Is the dress white and gold, or is it really blue and black? Question, what What are we we really doing doing here? Question, in these moments I want to ask you why I do not experience silence. Why do my thoughts come crashing down like a waterfall falling onto my cerebral, building a cathedral of ocular violence? Why on my bad days am I stuck in a gray haze where the flowers are all black and white and the weeds bleed verbal violet? It's through this lens that I saw the world. Question. Why have you promised us things like protecting little boys and girls when they are getting trafficked across borders by sexual hoarders? All those from their homes, some have been stole. For some, they've been sold by the same people who are meant to protect them from the world's aggressive sting. See, they have no more parents. And while we're on it, can we address the apparent? The question of why there are so many broken homes reproducing generational emotional gallstones being passed through the urethra of their soul. Why does, why does it, it feel, feel like, like life, life is just, just repeating, repeating itself? itself? Question, if God exists, why do I only ever hear silence when I ask him for assistance? I call myself Christian, but there are times in my life where I make doubting Thomas look like a saint, where my faith wouldn't let a feather walk on water. I often have more questions than answers. So who am I to educate others on what it means to be a follower? Question, Question. if a tree falls in a forest, but no one is there to hear it, does God know how many leaves it had? And what should be a simple yes demonstrates just how unsure I am. I grew up believing God knew how many hairs were on my head. 
but there are times I question if he even remembers my name, question. When I no longer wanted to go on living, why didn't he comfort me? I had this dream of becoming someone worth meaning. I used to believe having a significant other was everything, but when that relationship fell to pieces, I had a hard time believing in things like eternity, like self-worth, like being worthy of the breath I was keeping. And, and when, when I, I asked, asked God, God for relief, relief I, I remember not hearing, hearing a sound. Question, why does it feel like I'm just going in circles? Encircled by malfunctioning clones instead of new leaders with new thoughts that have been dug out and sought. My God, why do you allow me to question you? Is every answer truly manifest in you? If I struggle with my addiction, do I still deserve the title of Christian? Is it true that you're always with me, even in this? When I'm at my lowest and I'm struggling in the throes, are you with me toe to toe, blow for blow on my side? When I'm battling in the valley to hold my head above water and I'm flailing and wailing just to peek at the peak, are you standing there watching or with me when I sink? God, with my life for you, please. Question, do, do my, my prayers, prayers only reach, only reach God's, God's ears, ears when I'm on my, on my knees? knees? Because if it's just altitude preventing my needs from being seen, then why aren't life's valleys praised more than its peaks? There are times I choose not to ask God any questions because I'm afraid I won't like the answer. Question, if there's a saint writing down all my sins, at what point does God stop forgiving me for them? If his blood paid for everything I could conceive, is it grace or disregard that allows me to keep being this mess of a thing? Question, God, are you an introvert? Is that why I have trouble seeing you outside my physical peripherals? Can I only find you in the home of your sanctuary? Or could it be that you're the kind of solitude that loves company? Question, if God's heart is for the refugee, why are there so many of them? And why is it his children are the ones refusing to accept them? A question. question. Do, my Do my questions, questions make God angry? Question. Do my questions make God angry? Question. Do my questions make God answer? Be still and know that I am God. Answer. My son, maybe you don't know what flying is. Answer. You can let go of something physical and still hold on to something eternal. Answer. The answer you are looking for died so that you can have it. Answer. I have come so that you can have life and have it to the full. Answer. answer. I, I love, love your questions. questions. The basis of a relationship is founded in these. And more than anything, I want to know you and for you to know me. So please, question away. See, I'd, I'd rather, rather have, have you question, question me than not speak, speak to me at all. If there is a truth you cannot fathom, I will tell you. With, with love, love. To trust, trust me. Questions are important. When we're willing to ask those questions and search for answers to those questions, it can actually lead to faith. It can lead to a deeper understanding of how real God can be in your life. But we have to admit, some of us are just more skeptical than others. Maybe as a kid, you wondered, why doesn't Tarzan have a beard? Does he have a razor in the jungle? That doesn't seem probable or possible. Or why doesn't Elmer's glue stick to the inside of the bottle, right? It's curious. Or maybe more recently, you've seen those cardboard signs that say you can make $5,000 in a week. If that's true, then why won't he get better signs? <laughs> See, we often consider things too good to be true. But I want to encourage you to ask these questions 
to dig deep beneath the surface so that you can discover that there are good reasons to believe. You can discover that God is real if you're willing to ask these questions. And today, on Easter Sunday, we're asking the question, well, why Jesus? More specifically, why should I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? You don't have to commit intellectual suicide to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You don't have to check your brain in the door when you come to church on a Sunday. There are many intellectuals smarter than me that have discovered the same. Maybe you've heard of Sir Lionel Lakhu. He was an Indian attorney who won 245 acquittals for murder cases in a row. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. He had an ability, a razor-sharp ability to see reliable evidence. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for these acquittals, so many in a row. But he was also a cynic and skeptic of Christianity and was challenged to apply his legal expertise to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. After thoroughly studying the matter, he wrote this as his conclusion. I say unequivocally, that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leads absolutely no room to doubt. Sir Lukku became a follower of Jesus and wrote a book called The Question Answered. Or Simon Greenleaf, an atheist attorney who wrote the book on the rules of legal evidence. And while teaching in his class, he kept referring to the superstitious myth about Jesus' resurrection. And some of his students challenged him to use his own rules of legal evidence applied to the New Testament witnesses of Jesus. And so he did, and discovered the evidence to be overwhelming and became a follower of Jesus and wrote the book, which says this, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. Or maybe you remember the attorney that came to our church two years ago named Lee Strobel. He was trained in law at Yale and became a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And when his wife became a follower of Jesus, as an atheist, he felt he needed to prove to her that Jesus did not rise from the dead. I don't know what is inside of us as husbands to prove that we're right all the time. But in his pursuit to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, he was overwhelmed with the evidence and became a follower of Jesus and wrote a book called The Case for Christ. A film about his journey just came out, and I highly recommend it to you, especially if you're a skeptic. So what does this prove? That even attorneys can come to faith in Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, there are other intellectuals besides lawyers that can find faith, right? Mortimer Adler, agnostic philosopher and editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, studied the world's religions, and at the age of 91, decided to follow Jesus and get baptized. C.S. Lewis, atheist professor at Oxford, became a follower of Jesus and wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, among many others. In the sciences, the head of the Human Genome Project named Francis Collins wrote a book called The Language of God. His story is one who was an evolutionary biologist who found faith while decoding our DNA. Or Hugh Rost, who, as I mentioned, will be in Austin in two weeks, an astrophysicist who became convinced of faith through science of cosmology and wrote many books, including The Fingerprint of God. There are lots of really smart skeptics who found good reasons to believe 
And so what convinced them? Are you willing to have an open heart and open mind and take a journey of discovering with us today and even these next three weeks? Why, Jesus? Specifically, why should I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Let me just give you four reasons. One, because God foretold it. For 1,500 years before that first Easter, God foretold why Jesus would come. Over 60 prophecies staked along the roadway of history pointed the way that one day the Messiah would come. In fact, these prophecies told us where and when and why God was coming. In 680 BC, almost 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words, God will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I mean, right here, 700 years before Jesus... The prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah was going to be born a child. He wasn't coming from the heavens on a horse, but he was going to be born an infant, that he would be from the line of David, related, the ancestor of King David, and he would grow up in Galilee. Now, some of you who are more skeptical might say, well, that's easy. All they, the prophets had to do is write after Jesus and make it look like it was foretold. Well, do you know that in 1947, two Bedouin shepherd boys were chasing after a goat, and in their chase, they ran into a cave. This cave, we have a picture of it. It's a blurry picture. It's better online. <laughs> but in this cave were what is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They discovered 38 of the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures, and now we have scientific ways to determine the dates of ancient documents. And the carbon dating for these documents proved they came hundreds of years before Jesus. The prophecies written down about what the Messiah would do, we have proof, scientific proof, that we have the documents, prophecies, written well before Jesus. What's really remarkable, because of advances in science, we actually have more proof now than my grandparents did that what the scriptures say is what was actually written, that the scriptures are a reliable document that we can read and discover who God is. Or for some of you, your great-grandparents, we can look at what the scriptures say, and throughout them, it, it tells us over and over that God's love is for all the nations. In fact, of all the sacred scriptures, the Bible is the only one that is addressed to all nations 500 times. All nations are mentioned. God love, God's love for all nations is mentioned over and over and over. In fact, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel was formed in the beginning. In Genesis 12, the scriptures tell us that God chose Abraham and blessed him so that through him all nations would be blessed. So who is this God who's chosen to reveal himself? I mean, if you think about it, it's very difficult to understand who God is. I mean, he created space and time, and so unless he reveals himself to us, we, we would never know who he is. 
And let's be honest, in our world, there are all sorts of people who claim things from God that are absolutely wrong. They do evil things even in the name of God, which is not God's heart at all. In fact, I want to encourage you never to reject God based on the wrong ideas or the wrong actions of other people. Instead, consider what God says about himself. In the scriptures, there was a a moment where a skeptic was trying to determine who the God of all the gods would be. And listen to what it says in Isaiah 41. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Well, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past. Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. In other words, there's only one God, and you can know who he is because he's foretold the future. And he's revealed himself, his character as one of righteousness. He's come as a Savior for all the nations. Who is God? Well, he came to save us, and we discover his name is Jesus. So why Jesus? Not only did God foretell the coming of the Messiah, but God gives us freedom, but we reject his leadership. So we deep down, we all know that there's something wrong. We don't understand why we can't seem to have peace or a joy that will last, and we even struggle to love those we love the most. See, we were created for God, but because he loves us, he's given us freedom, and in that freedom, we've rejected God and his ways. God says through Isaiah, in chapter 53, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord, or the Messiah, been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. See, humanity, our default is to reject God's pursuit of us, to reject Jesus. See, God made us for love, to experience his love. And as we experience his love, to love others. We can be reconnected to the source of life and the source of love. But that will only happen in the midst of freedom. It's not genuine love if God were to force us to love him. So he gives us freedom, and in that freedom, we've made mistakes. We do things that are selfish and hurtful. I mean, think about it. In your heart, deep down, you may not admit it, but more than likely you've watched and even enjoyed a romantic comedy at some point in your life. There's something inside of us that loves the journey towards the couple meeting and will they or will they not. And usually all these romantic comedies end with the wedding. But that's just the beginning of the adventure. It's this pursuit and the opportunity to choose or reject the mystery of will they or will they not that, that draws us in. But I've never seen a movie, a romantic comedy about Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome is named after these four hostages taken hostage in Sweden years ago who actually fell for their captors. That would not be a romantic comedy to watch people taken hostage who fall in love, and at the end, they get married. That just grates against what's inside of us. 
See, God loves us and he gives us the freedom to say yes to his pursuit of our heart or to say no. And deep down, each and every one of us, our default is to go against God in his ways. I mean, just do a quick survey of your Saturday, yesterday. What percentage of the day were you intent on accomplishing God's will versus your own? See, we all want to play God, to be the God of our own universe rather than humbly seek God's will in his ways, which leads to the third reason why Jesus, because justice requires payment. See, Isaiah tells us in advance why the Messiah would need to suffer and die. Chapter 53 again of Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus came to pay for all of our wrongs. Yours, mine, all of humanity. In fact, if you think about it, to, to be able to rectify what was wrong before Jesus and all that has been wrong since Jesus would require a God that transcends time and space to come and rescue us. He could not have just been a man to take care of our problem. God came to rescue us, and he's removed every barrier between us and himself except for our pride. See, because of his great love, all that's required is that we humble ourselves and say, I need you. I need your forgiveness. What you did on the cross is what I need in my life. That's why we celebrate Jesus. That's why we meet on Sundays, marking that day, that first Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. Well, maybe you've heard that, well, all religions say basically the same thing. Well, I've studied the world's religions, and they definitely don't say the same thing about God. There are some similarities. In fact, remarkable similarities when it comes to the moral law. All of these different sacred scriptures talk about things like not committing adultery or not lying, but instead honoring your parents and caring for those who are less fortunate. It's referred to in the book, Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis as the moral law that's written on our hearts. But see, here's the, the thing. If we're honest, none of us have lived perfectly we, up to our own moral standards. None of us have kept the Ten Commandments or the Eightfold Path or the Five Pillars. None of us have only given out good karma. See, in the history of humanity, we've all messed up. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, atheists, we all need help. And we wonder and we hope that there might be mercy or forgiveness rather than condemnation. Will God condemn us? Can we ever do enough? And actually, Jesus answers the question for us in John 12. For it did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. See, God foretold Messiah was coming, and then he confirmed it in history. Listen to this amazing statement 500 years before Jesus from Zechariah. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace. That's love poured upon us even though we don't deserve it. And prayer on the family of David and all the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for only an only son. 
Or then a thousand years before Jesus was this amazing moment when King David wrote as if he was looking through the eyes of Jesus on the cross. A thousand years before Jesus. Listen to what he said in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. See, Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he was experiencing the weight of our sin that separates us from God the Father. He experienced all of our murderous, lustful, jealous, hate-filled, hurtful thoughts and deeds, big and small. And it killed him. That's why it says his heart was turned to wax. See, Jesus died of a broken heart. See, crucifixion was the most torturous way to, to execute someone. And Jesus had been whipped almost to the point of death. And in order to even survive for even a few hours on the cross, with his arms nailed and feet nailed to the cross, anyone being crucified would have to push themselves up in order to breathe, not to suffocate. And typically, after several hours of this torture, Eventually, to end things, the Roman guards would come over and break their legs so they could no longer push themselves up. But by the time they got to Jesus, he was already gone. He had already died. They pierced him. And the fluid that came out proved that, that his heart had already failed. See, Jesus died of a broken heart. And there's so much more on the prophecies. We just don't have time today. In fact, we're going to post on our Twitter page, at Gateway South, and on our Gateway South Facebook group page, a message that John Burke, our senior pastor, shared in the Explore God series. Just so much more when it comes to extra-biblical writers. Because you may be thinking, well, of course the Bible says this stuff, but there are actually historians that talked about Jesus being alive, and the witnesses, and the miracles. Historians outside of the scriptures who, who write about Jesus being alive. Almost 800 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, Amos says this, the earth will tremble for your deeds at that time. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. You will wear funeral clothes and shave your heads as signs of sorrow as if your only son had died. And this is remarkable, but this really happened. There are historical writers, Roman historians that wrote of this eclipse, this darkness that happened on this day. In Matthew, he writes, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Solar eclipse could not happen during the time of Passover because Passover is always around the full moon. This was a moment when Jesus gave everything for us and creation mourned in the darkness. Why Jesus? Because God pursues us and wants to give us 
new life. He's the source of life and love. He's given you freedom and he's done everything on our behalf so that we might know him. Jesus was the 3D representation of the infinite God who loves you enough to give his life on your behalf. And when he was on the cross, Jesus said seven things. The first three things he said all showed his concern for other people. In the midst of this painful moment, he prayed for the angry crowd and for the Roman soldiers who were torturing him. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, God on the cross has a conversation with a soldier who's come to faith and he says to him, the second saying was, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, more concerned with the needs of other people than himself. Or the third thing he said as he, young John, his best friend and his mother come up to him, he, he acknowledges, John, you're gonna have to take care of my mom. And it was after these three statements, concern for others, that the weight of sin of humanity and the pain being inflicted upon him led him to shout out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll talk about that more in a moment, but I want you to consider it was only after that weight landed on him that he finally expressed any need for himself when he said, I thirst. The one who came to bring living water so that we may never thirst again gave everything and he was thirsty. And then he says, it is finished. The original word is this word, tetelestai. It's the word that means paid in full. They would write it on their business documents, on their receipts, that the debt has been paid. And the final statement Jesus said was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus completed his mission for you and for me. I wish we had more time to go into each of these sayings, but just to spend a little bit more time on this in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he was actually quoting the beginning of Psalm 22, which we saw earlier, a thousand years before, was an unbelievably accurate depiction of what the Messiah would suffer on that cross. And in those days, people could hear the first line of a psalm, which is like a song, and they knew the rest of the lyrics. Now, we can do the same thing. We tried it out at the 8 a.m. service, and they did quite well. Let's see how you do. This is going to require a little bit of participation. We'll start with a nursery rhyme. Finish this phrase. Hey, diddle, diddle. What does that even mean? <laughs> and yet, somehow, we remember it, right? It sticks in our minds. Now, let's try a little harder one. You ready for this one? This is from Whitney Houston. I believe the children are our future. Very good. That's like 30 years old. 30 years old. Okay, let's try this one. This one's from Journey. Just a small town girl. <laughs> I think they added a little reverb to that. You know that one, right? Or how about this one? More recently, Katy Perry. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag? Okay, that one's not nearly as uh, well-known. That's from fireworks. We'll work on that. But see, when we hear the first line of a song, we, we can sing the rest. 
And so the Jewish crowd, when they heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Their mind went to the rest of the psalm. They were amazed as they remembered what David said a thousand years before about his willingness to give his body up and the torture and the actually buying his clothes. But see, they also knew that Jesus was not abandoned by God the Father. The answer to that question, my God, why have you forsaken me, was actually answered later in the psalm, which says this, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. They saw Jesus up on that cross and realized he's the Messiah. He's done it. He's done it. See, Jesus on the cross was reminding everyone who seeks to know if he is God, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, that his message is for the ends of the earth, all families and all nations. His message of love will be told to future generations. That's us. And to those not yet born, those are those coming after us. I wonder, maybe you've felt like that before. Deep inside, you've wondered, God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, he has not. He's still there for you. He has not hidden himself from you. In fact, he was not only there as his son willingly stepped into this moment, gave his life for us. He pursued Adam and Eve when they went their own way. He pursued over and over the people of Israel, and he pursues you. He pursues me. He has not forsaken you. He is right there for you. All you must do is reach out and say, I need your help. I need forgiveness. Help me trust you. And here's the amazing thing. When we do that, when we say yes, to what Jesus did on the cross for us. We experience new life. We experience a life in all its fullness. We experience rest. We experience a joy that's overflowing. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis. He said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. My encouragement to you on this Easter Sunday is, has the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus become infinitely important to you? Because when it does, when he does, it changes everything. Some of us have only viewed faith as moderately important. Some of us haven't even given God a shot. I want to encourage you, wherever you might be, to take a step of faith, even in this moment, and ask God, God, help me trust you. Help me with my unbelief. Or if you do believe, God, help me trust you even more. Just in this moment, in your own heart, talk to God.
Heavenly Father, thank you. You came for us. It's so mind-blowing, and, and we can't understand everything about you, but we can understand so much more when we trust you, when we seek you. Thank you for pursuing us, for rescuing us. Give each of us the courage to take steps forward in our faith, to trust you in every area of our life, in our relationships, in our work, in our friendships, in our free time. We trust you. We need you. In Jesus' name. In this moment, I want to invite you to stand. This isn't a song of reflection, but a song of response. And I want to invite you just to use this moment to connect your heart to God's, whether singing out or praying in your own heart. In this moment, the name of Jesus is of infinite importance.